Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. Uh, For me, this has been a long-anticipated Sunday. I've been looking forward to starting this series since about May 2019 when I decided to do this series and just waiting for, really, just for 2020 to come because I knew that I wanted to walk through Scripture together and we look at the entire story of the Bible together. Now, before we jump into it, just a couple of uh, housekeeping things, if you will. If you haven't been here in the last few weeks, then let me tell you what we are doing. In 2020, we as a community here at New Hope, we are uh, together going to read all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation beginning today. Our one-year reading plan did not begin January 1st. It began today, just in case over Christmas you forgot. And we start on January 1st, and I reminded you today, you wouldn't have been like, oh man, I'm already five days behind. And so we started today, just in case you did forget, that we could get going today. And so um, we are following the Read Scripture app. So you can go, whether it's Android or whether uh, iPhone or whatever it may be, phone, tablet, you can go and download the app and it will walk you through um, it via the tablet or via digital. But we also have um, these reading plans um, that are printed out. If you go, I don't want to do the digital and you just want the reading plan, we have it for you. It's on the back table. As you exit, there's a table to the left. They're free. Just grab one of these as we begin studying and reading through all of scripture together. Um, one of the reasons why we chose the app is because it has videos embedded into it that will help explain. Even for myself, for being a student of God's Word for many, many years, there's still a lot of Scripture that I don't understand and need refreshing on, and I'm grateful for these videos. Don't tell my Old Testament professor, but sometimes when we have to have quizzes coming up on, let's say, Leviticus, and I go, you know what, I need a quick overview. I go to the Bible Project app, I watch the video on Leviticus about seven minutes, and I'm good to go. So I don't think it's ever really helped me on a quiz or a test, but it at least is a good overview. And so I, I say that jokingly, but also say it seriously, that these videos are helpful. And so if, if as you read through it and you go, you know what, I don't know what Genesis is about, I don't know what Exodus is about, and you want a quick overview before you read it so you understand a little bit the context, these videos are helpful. Well, they're embedded into the app, into the reading plan, but also you can see the videos on this and you can go to their website and click on that video and watch it if you choose not to follow that along. Last but not least, we are also encouraging you to journal throughout the year. A journal is a way that you write through prayers. It's a way that you meditate. It's a way to, when you think about meditation, it's slowing down. For me, um, you know, just think of a food you enjoy. For me, just a bite of a good New York pizza after a long time of not having cheese. It's just that moment where you savor it, you chew on it. You don't rush through it, but you enjoy it. Well, that's what it means to meditate on Scripture, is you take it in and you chew on it and you savor it and you allow to enjoy it. And so journaling helps you do that. We have journals. We're currently out of them. We've ordered more. Hopefully it'll be a next week. But these journals aren't just journals, but they also give you a tool of how to walk through any passage of Scripture. So that may be helpful. But whether you use that journal or another journal, we want to encourage you to journal. Another reason we want to encourage you to journal is if in your announcements or in your handout, you have an announcement on one side and my sermon notes on the other. I began doing these sermon notes uh, consistently a little over six months ago because we wanted to give you a tool 
to help you follow along with me through the sermon, but also to help create a discipline of writing through the sermon so that you can refer back to it later. Well, one of the problems with the handouts is we often lose these handouts. And so I'm going to continue to give you a handout, but I want to encourage you to write notes in a journal somewhere organized. So hopefully by the end of the series, at the end of 2020, you'll have one place where you can refer to notes to help you tell the story of Scripture and walk through Scripture and refer to it back together. And so we want to encourage you to use a journal in that capacity as well. Last but not least, as far as homework or, you know, kind of doing some things, getting ready for as we jump into this, is... Um, I usually put all the scriptures on the screen. I won't be doing that moving forward uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because it would have been about 40 slides long this week, and I just didn't have time to do that. Um, So you are going to need a Bible in front of you. And so if you do not have a Bible, would you grab one of these black ESV Bibles from the seat back in front of you? This is the same version, and I want you to follow along with me. And so here's what you'll know is our text today, Genesis 1 through 11. If I am reading or referring to a passage in Genesis 1 through 11, it won't be on the screen. But if I'm referring to a passage outside of that, it will be on the screen. That way you only have to flip within those few pages. Does that make sense? So you need a Bible in front of you. You need a journal in front of you. And let's begin this incredible journey of walking through all of Scripture together to see the greater story of Scripture. So where do we begin? Where do we begin on this journey? Well, the obvious is you want to start at the beginning of any story. And you want to start in Genesis, which is what we'll do. But my question's more than that. Well, where do we begin? Because there's, the, we recognize that the Bible is made up of a bunch of different books, 66 to be exact, the, of Old Testament and New Testament. We understand the Bible is written by 40 different people over a span of 1,600 years in three different languages on three different continents. So when we talk about where do we begin studying this Bible, it's, it's simple to say, yes, the beginning, but there's more questions we've got to ask, like, how does all of this fit together? Many of us look at the Bible the way I looked at an event that happened in my life a week ago. Um, over Christmas break, um, part of New Year's resolutions, we, uh, Jen and I said, we want to do more things as a family um, because we recognize that it's cold and we're not outside playing as much. So we're inside. Let's find some things to do inside as a family together. Our kids aren't really old enough to do a lot of board games, but we don't want them watching TV all the time. So we said, let's start doing puzzles together. So we bought a puzzle, 500-piece puzzle, and we dumped it out on the table. And that moment of right there of going, oh, man, like I'm really stressed. Where do you even begin? Like, you know that moment of stress? For many of us, that's the way we look at when we go, we're going to study all of Scripture this year. As you, we see all the different puzzle pieces of all the different genres, of all the different books, and all the different stories, and we go, how does this all fit together? But we've got to remember something that, that Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, talking to some of his disciples after his death and resurrection. He's talking to them, and he says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he goes on and it says he walks them through all the Old Testament and shows them how the Old Testament was pointing to him as the Messiah. And so for us, as we begin the story, part of where do we begin is we recognize that from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation at the end of verse, or chapter 22, we recognize that all of it is pointing to Jesus. It's not just a story of rules and regulations or even of many heroes, but to quote the Jesus Storybook Bible, a kid's Bible we read with our kids, it says this about the Bible. The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. 
It's an adventure story about a young hero who, can, who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy tales that has come true in real life. Every story, just like the, the Bible or any story, every story uh, has some essential elements to it. Every good story has a plot. Every good story has characters, a setting, a conflict, and a resolution. And the story of Scripture is no different. So let's begin talking about what is the plot of Scripture. So before we jump into Genesis 1-11, through 11, what, is, what is the plot of all of Scripture? Think of it, to go back to our puzzle illustration, after I got past the over, overwhelming just anxiousness of, of 500 pieces sitting in front of me, we slowly, my wife and I, grabbed one piece at a time until we found what pieces? The edge pieces. And the edge pieces, we all start with the edge pieces for a few reasons. One, they're easiest to notice. They're easiest to point out. But also, once you fill in the edge of a puzzle, it, it is the frame for everything else. Think of the four plots twist or the four acts within Scripture, the story of Scripture, like the, like the frame that frames all of the story in. And so there are four acts or four plot steps within the story of Scripture. And the first is Act 1, Creation. Act two is the fall, act three is redemption, and act four is restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and all of scripture follows that plot line. We will see tonight that Genesis one and two is act one, creation. We will see that Genesis three is act two, the fall, and then we can go ahead and look at Revelation 21 and 22, and we see that that is act four, which is restoration. Therefore, from Genesis 4 all the way to the end of Revelation. So all but five chapters in Scripture are all in Act 3 telling us the story of redemption. As we jump into this and we think about that in mind, I want us just to begin reading Genesis chapter 1 together. But keep in mind, we talked about the plot already, which is the overall parameter of all of Scripture. But we will spend the rest of our time looking at the character the setting, the conflict, and the resolution of this story, which is spelled out for us in the beginning. So to do that, let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 1 together. And if you haven't done the one-year reading yet for today, which is Genesis 1 through 3, you'll be a third of the way by the time we are done. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, and if you're with me, just simply say amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it, uh, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees bearing fruit in which 
uh, is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater lights to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping livestock and creeping things, and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was so. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with, with, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We're going to ask four questions tonight. The first two questions are going to deal with the character and setting of our story. The third question is going to deal with conflict. And the fourth question is going to deal with the resolution of our story. But the first question is, who is God? As we look at the character, the first character in the story, we see it being God. So who is God? And we're going to look at four things that God is from this text. First, he is supreme creator. Second, he is sovereign king. Third, he is righteous judge. And four, he is merciful savior. So first, who is God's supreme creator? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very beginning, we see that God is the pre-existent creator. He was not created, but eternal. And he is the cause of all things for them to come into existence. He created all things. I recognize that popular opinion in our culture today says that there is no God. Therefore, he is not the cause of our existence and is not our creator. But that still begs the question, then who or what is the cause of our existence? Furthermore, is it even rational and logical to definitively and absolutely conclude that there is no God? Wouldn't that claim be self-defeating in and of itself? Let me illustrate. If I say to you that around this room, and I look at this room, and I say there is no red marker in this room. 
Now, for me to make that conclusion, I would have first to have searched everything in this room, and I would have to have perfect knowledge of what is and isn't in this room to conclude that there is no red marker in this room. Likewise, for me to absolutely, or for anyone to absolutely claim that there is no God, they would have to have complete knowledge of what is and isn't in creation. And by definition, if they did have complete knowledge of what was in or was not in creation, by definition, they would be God. Because one of the characteristics of God is that he is all-knowing. So for me to absolutely claim that there is no God means I know all things, therefore I am denying my own divinity, and therefore it's a self-defeating statement. So when we think about this and we recognize that it's, that doesn't solve the discussion in our culture, that illustration, but we do recognize that Scripture clearly communicates and we believing Scripture clearly believe what the Bible teaches is that God created all things. Quote comes to mind, Robert Jastrow, NASA physicist and a professor of geophysicism or physicist, whatever you call that. It's beyond me. That's kind of the point. A uh, professor at Columbia and Dartmouth said this, atheist said this, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So this idea that we recognize what Scripture says, that God is the creator of all things. But then specifically, how did he create? Now this question in particular is the question of much debate, specifically around Genesis 1 and 2. Even within not only the creation evolution conversation, but even within Christians and creation. How did God create? And here's what I want to say to this, and we're not going to dive into this much tonight because we don't have the time. But we got to recognize that Genesis 1 and 2 is relevant to these conversations of creation and evolution and then even specifically within creation. But I want us to see something tonight. The purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 is not creation versus evolution or even more specifically the different elements within creation. That is not the purpose. It's relevant to it, but it's not the purpose. And so even within those conversations, and let's rightfully have those conversations, but let's not miss the purpose. And tonight, we will hopefully try to grasp the full purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 and more fully Genesis 1 through 11. But how did we come to be? Here's what we know conclusively from Genesis 1, that God spoke and it happened. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse 6, and God said, verse 9, and God said, and verse 11, and God said, verse 14, and God said, verse 20, and God said, 24, God said, 28, God said. God speaks and it happens. Brings to mind already John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. What do, what, what do words do? They communicate. Right? In the beginning was the word that communicates. And the word was with God and the word was God. And, and in the beginning was God. John 1, 14. And that word became flesh. See the picture already that when John is starting his beginning to the story of Jesus, he starts it very similar to Genesis 1 and connects that God was, is the word and the word was in the beginning and the word is Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is in the beginning and a picture of God speaking. It is in it is in him and through him that all things come into being. Already we see a picture and the power and the magnitude of a supreme creator who speaks everything into existence. 
But we also got to understand that in his speaking everything into existence, what does he conclude about his creation? It is good. We will come back to that. But we got to see first that who is God? He is supreme creator. Second, he is sovereign king. By definition, that he is before his creation, that he existed prior to everything else in existence, that means against pantheism, he is not a God in his creation, but he's a God transcendent above his creation. That God is supreme and sovereign king over all of his creation. That he is ruler, that he is above, that he is by definition transcendent, which means that he is not in it, but he is above it. He is sovereign king over all things. We see his kingship and his authority begin to play out in Genesis 2 verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. We already see his kingship on mankind. He commanded Adam saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the days you eat of it, you will surely die. It's not hard for us to see that if there is a God in the Bible that we believe is, and he created as he says in Genesis 1, and created all things, he is above his creation, therefore he is sovereign king. But because he's sovereign king, he's third, he's righteous judge. Same verse, look at the end of verse 17. If you eat of it, for the day of you eat of it, you will what? You will surely die. It's a statement of judgment. That he is a sovereign king and he has the power and authority because this is all his kingship. We are all in his dominion. Therefore, because of his holiness and his righteousness, he judges all of creation. The day of you eat of it, you will surely die. You got to hear me today that we have a God who created all things, who is righteous judge. And to a very large extent, that should bring fear into our lives. Now, we're going to see in a moment, spoiler alert, that he's also a merciful Savior. And we are grateful for that, but that does not deny the reality that he is righteous judge. You might have heard it illustrated this way, that when you think about a righteous judge and people don't want to, don't, in our culture today, don't want to comprehend and talk about that God is a, is a judging and a righteous judge. They just want to hear this idea that he's a loving God and that a loving God wouldn't bring judgment on people and all these things. But that doesn't make sense because in our culture today, if we knew that there was a judge who was just ignoring crime in his court, we would have a problem with that. That's not justice. And so because he is a sovereign king and righteous judge, that he gave us a command, and yes, our sin against him, it does deserve judgment. You shall surely die. But, as we've already seen, he is merciful Savior. And we will see, not only throughout the rest of today, but throughout the rest of this series, how he is the merciful Savior. But for now, suffice it, just to jump into chapter 4, just for a second. Verse 42, we see the woman at the well, the story in John chapter 4, and the woman goes into her town. And tells them, there's a Jesus, the Messiah is out here, come see him. And they come and they were with him and this is what they say in John 4.42. They said to the woman, the woman who brought them out, she, they said this, It is no longer because of you, of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. When we t- see God as supreme creator, sovereign king, righteous judge, We are going to see in act three of the plot, redemption, how he is merciful savior every single week. So who is God? That is what Genesis one 
and to quickly communicate of who God is. Second, who are we? Who are the other main characters in the story? Who are we? Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we see from the very beginning that there's two things, what it means, just simple, there are two things to be in the image of God. First is we reflect the characteristics of God. Already, he created us in his image, that we bear his, the characteristics of God, meaning what he is in full, we are in part. So he is all-knowing, we have some knowledge. He is all-powerful, we have some power. He is omnibenevolent, all-good, we have some good. He not only bears the characteristics of truth, he is truth. John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the that he isn't just someone who has life, he is life. You see the difference? But we bear the characteristics. He is truth. He defines truth. It's not just a characteristic. It is part of who he is. And part of being in his image is that we bear truth. Furthermore, that we bear his goodness, his grace, his compassion, his mercy. At least this was the intent from the beginning. That we reflect the characteristics of God. To be created in the image of God. Recognize that he has created us good. Everything that he, in his creation, he said was good. And at the very end, he looked at all of it and he said, it is very good. Meaning, he has created you and I, male and female, in his image. And it is good. But second, not only do we bear the characteristics of God because we're in his image. But second, we reflect the dominion of God because we were created in his image. Right after verse 27, verse 28 happens. And it says this, and God blessed them and God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A lot of us times I have heard this passage taught and even myself uh, missing the link between verse 27 and 28. I thought verse 27, we're creating the image of God and that just means we bear his characteristics, but I miss because we are created in the image of God, we have the unique ability to fulfill the command in verse 28 to be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. Now, be fruitful and multiply is not unique to us as humans. We can look back uh, when he created the fish and everything. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. We can see this in Genesis chapter 1 verse 22. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters. So multiplication and filling is not necessarily unique to the image of God, but subduing everything while we multiply is very unique. We reflect the dominion of God. Think of it this way. Think about uh, for countries today, uh, the representation of a flag hanging. If, if, just for sake of illustration, one country were to go and conquer another country, what's the first thing that they're going to do? They're going to raise their flag, meaning this this country that this flag represents has dominion over this land. The flag represents who is reigning and ruling over that property. Likewise, in ancient Near Eastern times, in biblical times, that uh, for um, pagan worship, they would have idols in their home as the representation of that God being dominion and supreme over that home. It's one of the very reasons why in the Ten Commandments we are told to make no idols in the image of God. Why? Because we are already in the image of God. The image of God is the same Hebrew word that is used for idols. That we are his idols in the sense of we are his physical representation of himself here on earth. 
to be created in the image of God, we reflect his dominion. And so, because we're created in the image of God, we are that idol. Likewise, even furthermore, in when uh, biblical times is when you conquer a land, one of the things that you do before they had flags is they would put a statue of the king or an image of the king up in that land. We would see a picture of this when Jesus in the Gospels talking about taxes. He would say, hey, give me a Roman coin. What image is on it? Why? The image represents who owns it, who has dominion. So I want you to see this. Jesus, or excuse me, God specifically, Jesus, yes, but God specifically in Genesis 1 creates us in his image. We are his statue. We are his image. And he says, go and fill the earth with my dominion. Go and fill the earth with my dominion. We were in a position similar to a Joseph story, which we'll get to probably 1st of February. But if you're familiar with the Joseph story, Joseph comes all the way up to being second in charge in all of Egypt. Second all to Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him, you are second in charge and there's nothing in all of my land or no person in all that is greater than you except for me. This was our position in creation. That we were over all of God's creation. We were over all of dominion. Everything except for God. We reflect his characteristics and we reflect his dominion because we are created in his image. So if we, if we take Genesis 1 and 2 and we were to go to fulfill it exactly as God had intended, you would see a picture of God's creation, mankind, going and displaying his goodness, his love, his compassion, and mercy all throughout all of the world throughout history. But where you and I stand today, we look at a world that does not fit that picture. You and I look at a world that is broken. You and I look at a world that is hurting. You and I look at a world that does not perfectly display the image of God in all of his creation. So it begs question number three, what happened? Genesis chapter three answers that question, what happened? What is the conflict in our story and the story of scripture? Genesis three verses one through seven Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Remember, this was their command. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. We've already studied this, uh, I guess it's been almost two years ago now, so maybe we do need a quick you know, review, but we're not going to go into tons, but as we look at this, we can see that God has created man in his image. He has created him to have dominion over all things, and we see the enemy come and begin to tempt Adam and Eve, specifically Eve here, by challenging the goodness of God's word. Now remember, the word is key in Genesis 1 to all of God's creation. That it is through his word that everything comes into existence. It's through his word that goodness and power is displayed. And the enemy comes in and challenges that word. Is God's word really good? Is God's word really what is best for you? We see this even challenge in our world today. Specifically for us, one of the reasons here that we hold God's word to such a high standard. Because we believe that we can trust God's word. That we can follow God's word and that God's word is good. We don't. We do our best not to buy into the lies of the enemy where he's going, hey, is, God, is God's word really say that? Is God's word really good? Is that really what is best for you? But this is what he does to Eve here in this moment. And he lies to her in verse three. 
But God, but he, he said to him, but God said, you shall not eat, uh, excuse me, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We in God's creation are second in command. God is, yes, we've already seen sovereign king over everything. But he has given us dominion over everything except for him. But the enemy comes in and says, hey, the reason why he really doesn't want you to eat that, because if you eat of it, you will become like him. It's a temptation to be God ourselves. It's, 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 it's pulling at the pride within Eve and Adam and Eve and says, hey, I know second is really cool and all, but, but if you did this, God's holding out on you because if you did it, you would be like him. Now, one of the things they didn't understand is they were already like him. They were already in the image of God, but it was a temptation to dethrone God as sovereign king. It was when we see in verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was the light to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In that moment, they decided to rebel against their king. What happened is God is sovereign king. He entrusted his kingdom to us, and we rebelled against him. This is what happened. So what goes on after that? Seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. We continue on in the story as continue what happens because of this. God told them as righteous judge, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we don't see immediate physical death, but we do see spiritual death in a separation from God at the end of Genesis chapter 3 when he puts Adam and Eve out of his presence. They're still in the land. They are st- we are still in creation. We are not fully reigning and ruling the way he had intended to be anymore, but we see that sin continue to play out. The very next chapter, Adam and Eve have Two boys. Now, my boys fight all the time, but I hope this is not the story of my boys in any way. But we see the first brothers, the older brother, killing his younger brother. We see Cain killing Abel. Already, we see sin and death coming in into mankind because of our rebellion against God. And we see following, if you follow the end of Genesis chapter 4, you're following the lineage of Cain, which ends in verse 23 and 24, where it ends there talking about how uh, it, it, the, the, that throughout his lineage, they only got more and more and more wicked. But it's, it only continues on. We see Abel is dead, but Adam and Eve have another son, Seth, which kind of replaces him as the, the good son, if you will. And we follow his lineage in Genesis chapter 5. And he's supposed to be the good lineage whatsoever. But what happens is his lineage is carried on into Genesis chapter 6, which we see this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. Now, this is a good thing. Remember, we were, we were called to multiply. But here's the problem. And when you look at Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, what happened when we rebelled against God is, yes, we continued to multiply, but we, don't, we, we didn't multiply bearing the image of God anymore. We multiplied bearing the image of rebellion. We multiplied bearing the image of brokenness and of hurt and of what Genesis 6, 5 says, nothing but wickedness in our heart continually. 
So scripture says God regrets and he's sad that he created um, mankind and created everything. And so he brings destruction. But before he brings destruction in Genesis 6 through 9, we see the flood. Before he does that, we see a picture of Noah finding favor in God's eyes. And when we look at the story of destruction in the floods, there's a few things that, I'll, that we need to point out and notice. First is that because we are reigning and ruling over all of creation, that we are ambassadors not only of God to creation, but we are also ambassadors of creation unto God, meaning we represent all of creation. And our sin not only killed us, but it's affecting all of God's creation. So when God pours out judgment on us for our sin, mankind for their sin, not only does man pay the price, but we see all of creation pay the price. This is the picture of the flood, is that except for Adam and Eve in the ark, the flood comes and destroys, and God, we see his righteous judgment all of, all of mankind. But the second thing I want us to notice is Genesis 7, verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were opened. I want us to see what's happening at the end of verse 11. It's describing water that is bursting up from the ground and water that is coming from above. And as water comes from the ground and comes from above, it fills up all of the land and it kills everything. But here, here's what you got to see. The biblical theological meaning of the flood is ultimately... That in God's judgment on our sin, it is an undoing of the goodness of his creation. Let me illustrate it this way. Genesis chapter 1, we see God create the heavens of the earth. One of the first things he does is he separates the waters from top to bottom. Right? He separates them. Then on the bottom, on earth, he separates the water into sea and to land. And then on the land, he fills it with animals. In the water, he fills it with animals. And then he put mankind in the middle. I want you to see what the flood does. The flood brings judgment on mankind. The flood brings judgment on the animals. The flood covers up the separation between land and sea. It's no longer separated. And then Genesis seven eleven explains that water came from the top and the bottom. Once again, it merged back together. Do you see how the flood is literally a backtracking reversal of Genesis chapter 1? That because of our sin, that is an undoing of the goodness of God in creation. So when we think about God bringing judgment, he could have brought judgment in a lot of different ways, but he very intentionally does it. And Moses is communicating this as he writes it to communicate to us that our sin is a, has great effect and is an undoing of God's created order. It is not how he intended it to be. So Genesis 9 verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You've heard this before. This is Adam. This is a do-over. This is a second chance. Noah and his family, they'll do it better than Adam's family, right? Wrong. As soon as he settles back on land, he creates a vineyard, he gets drunk, and he sins greatly against God and his drunkenness and what comes out of it. And we see Genesis chapter 10, another lineage, and it flows into Genesis chapter 11, where wickedness is continuous all on the earth. Genesis chapter 11 reads this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks 
and burn them thoroughly. And the brick for stone and three, I've preached three times today. I'm getting a little tongue twisted towards the end of this. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city, the tower, which the children of man had built. I want us to notice what we see in Genesis 11 is just a collective of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see individuals deciding that they're not going to be obedient to God and that they're going to do an act that will dethrone God. Genesis 11 is no different. That the people are together and the people are united and they say, you know what, let's make a name for ourselves. And let remember, God God uh, created them and God did everything, but he said, let's make a name for ourselves and then let's build a tower up to God. Let's become like God. Let's get to him. Once again, it's a picture of pride of trying to dethrone God. And you've got to understand this, that in sin, it is our natural tendency to be the God of our own lives. This is from Genesis 3 into Noah, and specifically here in Genesis 11, it's clearly beginning to give us a picture in our story that the conflict is that those of us who were created to give dominion over all things except for God were, were uh, greedy and prideful, and we said, no, we want to get God too. We want to be God, and this is the conflict from the very beginning, and we see it play out. But here's the beauty of this. I remember when I was studying this for this, for specifically for this story and walking through this, I mean, for this message and walking through it, and even uh, English, uh, one of the th- English doesn't play this perfectly. One of the things about Hebrew specifically, it's very, very poetic. And looking at this and walking through it in the Hebrew, there's a play on words here in verse 5. And it says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. It's a very intentional um, um, uh, jab, if you will, at what's going on. Because literally, it translates that, that God got on his knees and knelt down to look at mankind. They are trying to create a tower to God, to dethrone God, and to be like God. And God laughs at them. And to even see what's going on, he has to get down on his knees to look down. Do you you see what the writer's doing? He's trying to communicate the ignorance and the stupidity of what's in our heart to try to be like God. You can't do it. So why do you even try? See the beauty of what the language is trying to communicate. And the story of redemption is in our rebellion... God coming and saving us. Now, if the story ends here, it's a horrible story. It's an absolutely horrible story. But there's resolution to the story that begins to play out. And the fourth question simply is, is there hope? Because when we look at Genesis chapter 11 and we end here, and just based on what we've seen, we would be tended, or we would have a tendency to say that there is no hope. But remember at the beginning when I said, in the conversations of Genesis 1 and 2, dealing with creation and evolution, that these passages are relevant to those topics, but that's not the purpose of these topics. Let me tell you the purpose of Genesis 1 through 11. Why did Moses write it to his original audience? To try to tell them yes to the question, is there hope? He wanted to try to communicate to them that there is hope. Let me show it to you. In Genesis chapter 3, when we see sin from the very beginning come in, we see Genesis 3.15. A promise is made in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity... Between you and the woman. Now, God is talking to the serpent, 
He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The end there is a clear promise that there will come one from the woman. So there will be a seed of the woman. There will be another person who comes who will ultimately destroy the enemy and overcome the effects of the enemy. And so we, when we studied this two years ago, looking that we have all of Scripture, we recognize that this was a promise to Jesus, that this points all the way to Jesus. And we now have the privilege of recognizing that in a few ways. One, I will put enmity between you and the woman is referring to the virgin birth. Why and how do we know that? Because if you just simply look at Genesis chapter 5, you look at Genesis chapter 10, you look at Matthew chapter 1, anytime you see a lineage in Scripture, it always goes from male to male to male to male. But here God says there's going to be one that goes from a woman into the child, representing that there's going to be no male contribution to the one, the one that is going to come of this. Now, hindsight allows us to fully see this, more clearly, but there's a promise that there's going to come one that is ultimately going to crush the enemy. And we, like I said, recognize that that points to Christ, and we'll see that more fully throughout this year. But for the people of God and for uh, specifically Adam and Eve and their lineage, they understood this truth. We know that they understood this promise because Genesis 3.20 said that the man called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Which at this point in time, she was not the mother of all living. She was the mother of all death. She's the one who ate of the fruit and gave to her husband who's with her. So at this moment in time, she is not the mother of all living. But because of the promise of Genesis 3.15, Adam recognized that life would come through the woman, therefore named her the mother of all living. And so specifically, Genesis 1 through 11, 1 through 11 is tracking, trying to find the second Adam. See, the first Adam brought about death and destruction, but Genesis 3.15 promises that there's going to be a second one that comes, a second Adam that's going to bring life, which is precisely why when Cain kills Abel, Genesis 4 gives us a lineage to Cain and it stops, but Genesis 4 ends with this, verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed Meaning God has determined, God has appointed for me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's intentional that Moses, when he writes this, is trying to show that it's through the line of Seth that the second Adam is going to come. Which is why he spends chapter 5 giving us a lineage. Listen to me, there's a lot of things that happen between Genesis 1 and 11 that I would want to know about besides the lineage. There's a lot of things that Moses could have said, but this is showing the importance of this second Adam. That he's tracking to show how it goes from Seth all the way into Genesis chapter 6, it goes to Noah. And then when we get to Noah, we have a picture and a potential in Genesis 9 of Noah being the second Adam. Which, God blessed Noah, we already read this, we read it again. God blessed Noah, Genesis 9-1, and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Ah, this is the exact same command and covenant that was given to Adam. It's a pretty good chance that Noah's the second Adam. So we can expect it to be different. We can expect Noah and them to do it different. We can expect Noah to then multiply and have dominion as God intended, and there will be no more sin and brokenness. 
But we've already seen that that's not the case. And so Noah is not the second Adam. After Babel continues on, and we're going to see next week as we jump into um, Abram or Abraham, the question then is Abraham the second Adam? We're going to find that it's not him. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not Joseph. It's not Moses. It's not Joshua. It's not David. And on and on, the story of the Old Testament is trying to follow the lineage of the second Adam to find out who the second Adam is, which is why Matthew chapter 1 starts with the lineage. Because Matthew chapter Matthew is precisely written to a Jewish audience, and one of the apologetics that Matthew does to try to prove that Jesus is the Messiah and the second Adam is by tracing him all the way back to Seth, all the way back to the beginning. The lineage is that important. Why? Because the story of redemption is answering or specifically asking and trying to answer who is the second Adam. Now we can understand the importance of what Paul would say in Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 12, it reads this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skipping down to verse 17, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, talking about the first Adam, that because of Adam's sin, death spread through all mankind, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in, and in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. You see what Adam's beginning to argue? He's saying Jesus is the second Adam that we've been looking for. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all man, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. See what he's doing? Adam is the first Adam that brought sin. Jesus is the second Adam that brings the life that we have been looking for. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now you get why Jesus in Luke chapter 24 said that all of the Old Testament is pointing to me. To take the illustration of our puzzle, there was at one point, my wife and I worked on this puzzle for three or four days, and there was at one point, she crazily um, messed up the system that we had going. And she did that by moving a picture of the box somewhere else. I was like, no, 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 I can't see it. Like, I need to put it over here. We've had a system for like, 30 hours now, like it didn't take us that long, but it felt like it. That conversation led to then me going, how hard would this be if we didn't have the picture of the box? Like how, think how hard this would be to try to put all these puzzle pieces together if we weren't constantly, which I'm in my head right now, the puzzle box was off to my left. And so I kept looking like this. It was like, it's what I did. It's no wonder my neck hurt. You know, like it's just like constant, right? But I said, think how hard this puzzle would be if we didn't have the picture. Here's my point. Jesus is the picture to the puzzle. And if we look at the heap, we begin this journey and we see these, this pile of puzzle pieces. One, we want to put the edge pieces, which is the plot, creation, fall, redemption, or restoration, which is then, or recreation, some would say, which I like that. But still, even then, we don't know what to do with the puzzle pieces. We don't know what to make of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and everything else if we don't have the picture. And Jesus is telling us, I am the picture. But the whole story of scripture from Old Testament is pointing to me. That I am the creator of the world. I am king. Yes, absolutely. I am judge. But I'm also merciful savior. 
and that Jesus is our merciful Savior. Not only does the Old Testament point to Jesus, but all the rest of the New Testament points back to Jesus. And truth be told, our lives point to Jesus also. But the question is, all of us are bearing an image. All of us are reflecting an image of the kingdom that we are a part of. This is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that when we are in Christ, that the Lord is the Spirit, and that when we are in the Spirit, part of Christ, that we with unveiled faces, meaning there's nothing else in between us and God, that we are being transformed back into His image from one degree of glory to another. In Christ, we are being created, we are being sanctified, we have been justified, we are being transformed back to do the very thing that we were intended to do, to bear his image in his creation. We've been redeemed, meaning part of redemption, praise the Lord, is that he has rescued us from a kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, Paul would say, and has brought us into the kingdom of light. You and I are in a kingdom and we are representing an image of a king. The question is, is it of our King Jesus or is it of of sin and darkness and brokenness and weakness? Or is it the image of you trying to be God yourself? And would you hear the warning of Genesis chapter 11, how dumb that is, because God has to kneel down to even see your efforts to try to be like him. But instead, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word and God. Verse 14, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, verse 17 says, that we have all received grace upon grace. For through Moses came the law and the prophets, but through Christ came grace and truth. See what John's doing even from the beginning. He's also doing a lineage but he's doing his lineage straight back to Jesus being God. And that instead of Genesis 11, of us rebelling, trying to be like God, or even in our religion, trying to get back up to God, God not only looks down and kneels in craziness of us trying to rebel against him, but in love as a merciful savior, he leaves his throne and he comes down and meets us right here. He is our merciful savior. He is the second Adam we've been looking for. The question is, do you know him? We say it here at New Hope that one of the marks of a believer and one of the marks of maturity is, we put it right here on a banner, that you live surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Because we recognize that Jesus is the King. He is the sovereign King. And when we, to call ourselves Christians, isn't just that we have a certain belief system, even though that's a part of it, but it means that we are in the kingdom of our King that we are in the kingdom of light, that we, to claim ourselves Christians, is to say that we are surrendered to the Lordship. And now that we are left in his creation, that we are living to bear his image, and spoiler alert, Revelation 21 and 22 makes it so very clear that he is going to make all things new. And once again, it will be a kingdom of perfection. There will be no more sin. There will be no more hurt. There will be no more brokenness. It will just be God on his throne and his servants worshiping him. What image or whose image do you bear? And my challenge and my invitation is that Jesus is a merciful Savior and he invites you to surrender to his lordship and bear his image. Will you surrender to him today? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your goodness. So grateful for your mercy. 
I'm so grateful that in Act 1, you created all things by the word of your power. That you created all things good. I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so sorry for Genesis chapter 3. Where man got greedy and prideful and we rebelled against you. I'm sorry that it happened then. And I'm sorry that for the moments that it may have even happened in my life today. Father, we repent of trying to be like you in the sense of dethroning you. Or we repent of trying to be the, the God of our own lives. Because we can't do it. But we're so grateful. Promise of Genesis 3.15. That there will come one who will bring life. And that's Jesus. We're grateful for redemption. We're grateful for forgiveness. We're grateful that you have saved me. Ephesians 2 says that you have saved me and brought me into your kingdom. By grace, you have done this. I didn't have to do it. I couldn't have even earned it if I tried. But you saved me in your grace. And thank you for the promise of Act 4, full restoration. Genesis 21 and 22, that you're going to make all things new. And we will be as it intended to be for all eternity, reigning as your image bearers in all of creation. We thank you for that promise. But in the meantime, Jesus, as the Christians in the room, we surrender fresh and anew to you today. You are king. Not only do we want the story of scripture to point to you, we want the story of our lives to point to you. Every single day, we want our life to be, to bear your image, to bear the goodness of the grace of the gospel to the world around us. We want to bear your image. We bear your mark. Father, for those in this room who may have been around Christianity, may have heard some of these things, but today for the first time may be recognizing that I don't think I'm in the kingdom of light, but I'm still living in the kingdom of my own, my own kingdom, of trying to be the God of my own life. Father, I pray that that recognition wouldn't be condemnation, but it would be an invitation into your kingdom. Through surrender to you as Lord, through grace and mercy, would you save souls in this life or in this room today? Would you redeem some into the kingdom of light? We are thankful for your goodness. We are thankful that you are the picture to the puzzle, so to speak. That you make every piece of the scriptures fit together. You make every piece of our lives fit together. We're grateful for you. We worship you. We exalt you. Just take a moment. We're not going to end worship in song as we usually do. So just take a moment. And would you just worship him in your heart? Would you just take a moment where you would just, between you and him, say, Jesus, I surrender to you today. Forgive me. For rebelling against you. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.